You're listening to Pangea, episode 8. I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I've got an episode today that I'm really excited about, an interview with John Donnelly. Uh, many of you might have might know his byline from the Boston Globe. He was the Globe's first Africa, uh, he opened the Globe's first Africa Bureau and has covered um, the politics and policies of health uh, from Washington, D.C. for many years. Most recently, he has been writing for Global Post and doing a variety of interesting uh, projects with different organizations like the Aspen Institute and a number of others. Uh, but in this interview, we focus on one of his most recent endeavors, A Twist of Faith, which is a new book that he's out with. Uh, just to give you a little taste, here's a quote from the back of the book from Warren Buckingham, uh, who was the first recipient of the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief Lifetime Achievement Award. Warren says, Donnelly documents the twisting road traveled by many from a faith-motivated, righteous commitment to Africa's AIDS orphans to the far more difficult destination of doing the right thing. David Nixon, uh, who is the main character in the book, David Nixon is an archetype for the dozens of well-intentioned Americans I have met who have triumphed or failed miserably in direct proportion to the degree that they were able to acquire humility, embrace African family and community values, and overcome the perception that they knew best what African children needed to thrive. Um, so definitely a very interesting read. And part of um, what we discuss in the interview is how John's reporting ultimately led him to the story and how his his personal faith, uh, since this is an exploration of faith and international development and global health, um, you know, impacted uh, the story that he ended up telling. So I hope you will enjoy this interview. And um, just before we get into it, um, a programming note, if you will. If you uh, found happen to find this uh, podcast through iTunes, I hope you'll check out the website watchpangea.com. There's a little more information on each show and links and um, just some more details to add context. So check that out. It's watchpangea, P-A-N-G-E-A.com. Or uh, if you're looking for ways to be reminded about other episodes, I hope you will either subscribe to the email list and get an email each time there's a new episode or subscribe in iTunes. It's two easy ways to never miss an episode. And if you're enjoying these, I hope you will consider doing that. So without further ado, here is the interview with John Donnelly. Hey, John, thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for having me, Jack. Yeah, it's it's great to talk to you. I um, you know, really enjoyed this book just as, you know, someone who is, you know, interested in reporting on Africa, but I think there's a lot of different types of people that um, can be that would be interested in reading this, you know, certainly people from the faith perspective, anyone interested in global health. But I wanted to get right into it and ask you what personally motivated you to tell the story and look into how faith impacts aid and development. Well, I, I um, had thought for a while about I, was, I lived in Africa from 2003 to 2006, and I moved there specifically to cover the AIDS crisis. And I thought for a while about doing um, a book off of that, but then I was, I felt like, you know, there, so much had been written about, about AIDS there that I, I kind of 
talk myself out of it. Um, but there were a couple things that happened, and one was um, that, that sort of looked at a huge problem um, with AIDS orphans, and then a response to it that it was surprising to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in Africa, as you know, there's, um, you know, maybe 14, 15 million orphans or so, and and in 2003, the number was, um, you know, increasing um, in a, at an incredible rate, maybe a million or million a year or so, with, uh, because treatment for, for AIDS hadn't really begun. Um, and and I, started, um, I started noticing that, that there were a lot of people um, coming over from the U.S. Um, trying to do something about it, the small groups that came over. A lot of them were faith-based groups. Mm -hmm. um, and I was on a trip in Lesotho um, in 2003, 2004, and I and it was actually in this this um, this place where you do pony trek, you know, rides into the the mountains of the Sutu. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the owner of this lodge who um, who was trying to you know asking tourists to give, um, um, you know, for kids in the village. And I asked her about it. And she goes, you know, it's one of the hardest things in the world to actually give, um, you know, a way that's helpful. And I said, what do you mean? She told me a story about um, about how. People would come and they'd, and they'd bring them to the village school and and people fell in love with this one uh, boy, um, you know, in, in, in primary school and they wanted to give to him. So she helped arrange that and they gave money to the boy and the boy went off from Lesotho um, into South Africa um, and he went to boarding school. And she said, but you know what happened is that he never, ever fit back into this village. He was... Um, he was sort of ostracized because, um, you know, he got the special treatment, and he also found it really hard to um, to fit back in. Um, and so they set something in the village to actually wouldn't that you could no longer give to one person or one family that you actually gave to a village committee, and the village committee would then decide what to do with it. And um, and then she said it worked better, but it was still hard because money would come in, and there would be a lot of disagreements about what to do with it. So. So from that point on, it was sort of, it's kind of a clash of, um, of culture, clash you know, involving money, and, and, you know, how do you really go to an area that has such great need um, and, and give in a way that really has a great outcome. So I, 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 I then started looking into um, all these Americans coming over um, to Africa and to look at whether they were being effective, and that was sort of the genesis of the book. Mm -hmm. And and so when um, when was that? When did you first start looking into this question? Um, I actually came back uh, to the U.S. Um, in 2006, and I went to a, um, a a conference at a huge church in California, the Saddleback Church, which is led by Rick and Kay Warren, mm -hmm. um, uh, who are very well known in the states. Rick Warren wrote a bestseller, "The Purpose Driven Life." Um, and they had an AIDS conference, which in 2006 drew um, two senators, uh, Sam Brownback and Barack Obama. And um, and I went. I, my editors allowed me to go because Barack Obama was was there. And at that point, there was a lot of talk about him running for president. Um, and, but when it what I found there kind of shocked me. There there was a lot of talk um, about there were just really only really the two best ways to help um, orphans in Africa were. Mm -hmm. um, whereby either adopting uh, them or to build an orphanage. So um, 
I immediately made me interested in going back over and following some of these people who were suggesting this because my experience in Africa showed me that adopting was a wonderful selfless thing to do and it could it obviously would would completely transform the life of, of a child but it, it you know every year I think Americans adopt about three to four thousand kids from Africa so mm. it didn't doesn't really do much to help the overall problem and orphanages um, you know, really um, have never worked anywhere. And from what I saw of them in Africa, they were very expensive. And I was just very doubtful whether they had good outcomes. Right. And and one of the things um, in the book that, that actually really struck me is you talk about a woman um, at, I think, the Saddleback Conference who, uh, you know, was kind of critical about this approach. And, you know, it didn't seem like um, she had many supporters. Um, you know, wh- why do people have such attachment to this idea and why are they so unwilling to question it, do you think? I mean, I think, I think it's, it's actually kind of a natural response. You, um, you go to a foreign place mm-hmm. and you get somehow connected to some local people and then you go a little deeper and you have an amazing experience. You go into an African village and you go and you meet kids, you sit down with them, you play with them, you get invited by a family to have dinner, and it's a dirt, you know, it's a dirt hut you may go to, and you're just totally brought in, and you look at that child and you say, I really want to help that child. And and you think, you know, that child deserves to eat well, deserves to be taught well, deserves to sleep in a bed, you know, deserves the life that I have. And so... The, the the way that people I think immediately think of is um, let's build an orphanage. You know, let, I want to help this one child in front of me, and maybe fifty or sixty or a hundred others like him. And boy, what a gift that would be! So I think that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very you know it's it's an incredibly you know giving thing to to do. The problem is it's it's, it's not the right thing to do. Um, that there, what I found and what many other people have found is that orphanages, um, you know, only do, you know, um, involve a few kids. Right. And, and, and their outcomes aren't all that good. The same thing, um, you know, with a boy in the, in the Lesotho village, they have a really hard time reintegrating into society. I mean, I met mm-hmm. some kids in Ethiopia who were in an orphanage for 10, 12, 15 years. And they got out at age 20, and and they were adrift for many years. They didn't know how to do traditional coffee ceremony, and they didn't know how to ask a girl out for a date. And is is the solution then to have programs or some type of transitional support for people at that point in their lives? Yeah, I think I think the solution is to listen to people um, on the ground, local people who who really know communities well. Mm-hmm. Who actually in Africa now there are many many in in Asia and Latin America there are many many programs that are that are quite good that are run by local people who have it figured out and so the the and one of the things that they have figured out is that you know you keep kids in in the community you know kids who are orphans you you keep them with the extended family you know maybe you have a way of supporting that extended family who takes in these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but that you that you work within the system, within the the structure of society, um, it's not perfect. And there there are obviously you know many vulnerable children around the world. Um, but 
it has the best chance, um, you know, especially if you work with a local group that knows the needs of the society, that they can address those things and they can and they themselves will know what to look for more than an outsider would. Sure, sure. And so getting back, I guess, to, you know, you tell the story of this through David Nixon uh, in your book, who's a, a deeply religious um I think he was a carpenter from North Carolina, and um, you know he sought out to to build an orphanage um, in Malawi. Um, how did you first meet him? You know, when did you realize that he was going to, you know, become how uh, how you told the story? Um, so I, I decided to after I went to Saddleback Church, I decided to go to Malawi. I'd spent a lot of time there um, in the past, and. So I, knew, I just knew, knew a lot of people. I knew a government official there. And Madonna was in the news at the time. So I kind of wanted to hear what was going on with Madonna. She was adopting a girl, and, um, or a boy, actually. And, and, um, and, and the, the, the government official told me, he said, you know, you know Madonna's, Madonna's an outlier. I don't know why you want to focus on her. Everyone's focusing on her. Why don't you focus on this American guy, David Nixon, you know, he's really interesting because he came over wanting to build an orphanage, and I kind of set him straight. He's now, you know, building a school, and and it's actually working pretty well. And so, um, so I, it was a great idea. And so I I, um, I called up David Nixon that night, and we arranged to meet the next day. And I kind of knew right away. First of all, he already had a good story. He'd already been there, and it seemed like he had. He had learned um, some lessons, and he'd become more humble. Mm-hmm. But when I met him, um, it was a moment of intense drama and hurt. He had been um, tending to a child, uh, Saoudsu, who was, um, was HIV-positive and was very sick in the hospital, but he was getting a little bit better, and, and he, was, he was just there every day, every day. And when I saw him that morning, we were all we were going to go out to his um, his project, and that was like an hour outside of the uh, long way, mm-hmm. the capital. And and he came in, and he started talking, and he, he just he just broke down. the the boy The boy had died um, the night before, and and for David Nixon, his world was shattered. Um, and so for the next next three four days. I stayed with David Nixon um, as he sort of did the funeral arrangements. We went to the hospital morgue. I had no, I knew the, the the man who ran the hospital morgue because I had spent time in the hospital a couple of years before, just sort of living in the adult wards to, just to cover AIDS. And and so I just just followed him, and he was very trusting. Um, and you know, for a writer to find someone. Who has an amazing story, which David Nixon had, and also, you know, we could develop a rapport and we could have trust. It was it seemed like the right the right match. Um, I did actually go on and and spent months more with about a dozen other Americans, um, you know, in in four or five other countries. Um, but the first person I met was the most had the most powerful story. Right, right. And um, how does, I guess, his experience compare with the others? Um, David seems to be a person who's learned to listen. Is that something that everyone tends to pick up? Or, 
has that not been the experience of the others that you observed? I think I think it was really a mixed experience. Actually, um, mm-hmm. it was a little bit unusual in that you know a lot of a lot of people come over. I mean, there are um, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Americans who go every year on mission trips, um, and 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 also people go not for for faith reasons to Africa alone. Their churches give more money to um, kids in Africa than the U.S. government does. It's an amazing outpouring of um, of giving. Um, but it's very uncoordinated, and it's and and people go with really, um, you know, Americans really think um, they can, they their real can-do spirit will will make things happen. Um, but I found that a lot of people that went, um, you know, actually stumbled for a long time um, because they went with too too well to find an idea and didn't really go to listen. The people that learned to listen had success. And so it's it's interesting because it seems like uh, what you observed is a little bit at odds with something that Nicholas Kristof wrote um, a few years ago. He talked about like the DIY development workers. Do you know what I'm referring to? He did a column on this. So do you would you say that what you observed is sort of at odds with what he appeared to be praising people for? Yeah, I mean, I think he he also was. Um, um, I think he also. Um, I mean, the one thing about Nick Kristoff is that um, he and and I, I he spent. Um, I and I and I've done the same thing. I've done the same kind of story where I go in and I would write about. Um, you know, someone, I used to work for the Boston Globe, so I would write about someone from Boston who had set up this project, and I would spend two, three days with them, and I would write a pretty positive story. Um, I spent weeks and weeks with people, and um, and I sort of got deeper and deeper into their story and got to see a lot of things that weren't working well. So I think it's a matter of time. I think the more time that you spend with people as a as a as a writer, the more the fuller picture you get. So it it it, it what I did find was at odds a little bit with what Nick Kristoff and what others have written about. Um, and you know I just I, I found um, you know I found amazing problems. Um, you know David Nixon himself had these these um, friends come in from North Carolina. To come in and do, um, you know, they, they quickly came in to do, um, they wanted to give out sneakers and they wanted to um, do health checkups of all the kids. A wonderful idea and everything. But, you know, without telling one, they started taking AIDS tests of all the kids without even telling David Nixon. And, um, you know, which is incredibly unethical. Um, and they, you know... They, they, he asked them, why, why are you doing that? You know, why would you do that to people without telling them and everything? And they said, well, because we thought you'd like to know. And he said, I don't want, I don't want to, you know, he was, he was incredibly upset with them. But people come in and they think, you know, they, they sort of stumble into these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, and you, um, do get into this quite a bit in the book is, you know, missionaries, um, and, you know, their whole role in this. To what extent do you think people who are motivated by faith reasons to get involved in development work 
are acting altruistically, you know, as opposed to using it as a means to an end, you know, to to missionize people? I would say most of the people that I found um, did it to um, did not do it to proselytize. They did it to um, to really help others. Mm-hmm. To and many of them uh, would say they 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 wish to live as Jesus did, and um, but you know I think it's um, and so I think they had incredible motivation. They had staying power mm-hmm. um, to do it. Um, but I also think that that one of the motivations that they had, if they were honest, and many were honest about it, was not only to save other souls, but to save their own soul. And that it was a lot of a lot of uh, what they were doing is really for themselves, which is natural. I think. I mean, it's it's um, you know we we um, we go out and we can have altruistic motives and and to give to others, but it. It sure makes us feel incredible when we get something back, you know, a smile, a hug, uh, you know, something. So, so I mean, it's a complicated picture of motivation. Um, there were clearly, though, people that went to prophetize that 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 went um, that would go in and give food aid or 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 you know work with kids addicted to, to sniffing glue in Western Kenya, and they would come back to you know, to their place at, at night, and they would pray for a couple hours. They would teach the gospel. Um, so it's not so much like it was a lure in, but it was definitely part of the package. Sure, sure. Uh, speaking of, I guess, motivations, let me ask you a question about your motivation. Are you personally a person of faith, Um and how did that impact, you know, the way you observed and wrote about this? That's an interesting question because I'm actually, um, I do not actively, um, I don't belong to a community um, of church or, or any, any religious community, but um, I was raised a Catholic and I was raised in a, in a church that, um, actually broke off from the Catholic Church. It was really, really a radical. My parents became kind of more radical in their faith, and um, um, and they instilled in me, or that I think that whole experience instilled in me a sense of social justice, and and really whatever I did, um, there there should be. Um, you know, it's, it was, there's a deep motivation that I have to help others and to help others who are less fortunate. And so going to Africa for me, um, you know, is, is I went as a journalist, um, sure. and I went, I went to cover, you know, um, sort of the, the incredible transition point in the AIDS crisis where there was almost no treatment to suddenly treatment started pouring in. Um, I thought that was very important to cover closely you know, as an American journalist to, to, to show what, what this huge effort was doing. But I also went because um, I believe that, um, that the way um, that it's very important for people in wealthy countries to really see what happens in, in the poorest countries, that the people somehow need to, um, need to know these stories. And so, and I think that is motivated back when I was just a kid, 
um, just watching uh, people do things, you know, such as just really giving to the poor. Um, so anyway, that's that's all yeah. part of it in, in the lens of doing it as, you know, a journalist. I don't think the book, for instance, um, I try very hard um, not to have much opinion in the book. And I also felt it was a really important principle to me um, to treat uh, people of faith in a real even-handed way. I think in the mainstream media, um, people of faith who do things for faith reasons are often dismissed in a way that's not that's not right. And so I really wanted to be respectful um, to people who do it, even if I found that they um, they weren't doing things that or their outcome wasn't all that good. Um, I still think it was amazing they're there in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, what you say about the way the mainstream media treats people of faith. It also seems, you know, that there's um, a perception that they should be held to a higher standard. Right. How, how do you feel about that? Is that, you know, do you think that's, I guess, a valid uh, belief? A higher standard in what way? What do you, what do you mean? Uh, it just seems like, you know, if um, if a person of faith does something wrong, it's much worse because he or she is a person of faith. Yeah, and, and the bar is much lower right. for you know what a transgression is. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think I think in mainstream media, I mean, there there are all these stories that that are they're amazing stories of you know that involve hypocrisy of people preaching one thing and then going out and and doing the very thing they're preaching against, um, and that that splashed in the mainstream media. And those stories, I think, should be told. But I, it definitely skews the perception. Um, at least it gives a picture um, of you know of uh, faith uh, people of faith um, that you know a, a, a large proportion of them are um, you know are I don't know, sinners or or <laughs> that that you can't trust them completely. Yeah, and that it's it's just a corrupt group. I guess you know when I sort of. A- approach this more journalistically, I just think of people as faith as someone with a different worldview. Um, right, right. No, exactly. And it's, and it was, that was a great thing for me to really, to, I, with David Nixon, we would spend hours talking about his faith because hmm. I wanted to understand it much more. And, um, and that was great. It was really interesting. It was, it was, it was a real gift to have the time with him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John, I know um, we're getting uh, short on your time soon, but um, I wanted to close out and just ask uh, what's next for you. I know there's an interesting new uh, uh, career prospect uh, that's coming up. So, yeah, what's next? So I, um, um, uh, an old friend of mine, someone I used to cover, um, um I used to cover actually in, in work in Peru and Lesotho and um, in Haiti um, on health issues. Um, is now the president of the World Bank. His, his name is Jim Kim, <laughs> and um, and so he asked me. Um, we've we've been looking. Um, he's we've talked in the past about working together, and he recently asked me if I would come on and work with him at the World Bank as his communications advisor. So I'm starting in. Um, in a week or so, and I'll be traveling with him um, um, and sort of helping him um, tell stories and giving him advice. 
Great. Well, I'm sure it will be uh, a fantastic new role and certainly with interesting challenges. And uh, I know I'll personally miss your reporting. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, uh, but I'll, I'll look forward to more of these, these stories that you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was it was interesting to hear. And, you know, I'll let uh, listeners know how they can um, get a copy of the book. Um, as, as I mentioned, I certainly found it a fascinating read. Well, thanks, Jackie. I appreciate appreciate this. Absolutely. Okay, thanks a lot, John. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. You too.